The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. It's Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Would you read with me? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This might be a familiar passage for you this morning. We also find it in Matthew's Gospel. And it might sound familiar even if you've been with us through this Mark series, because what we have this pattern of is as this is the third time that Jesus has predicted foretold his death and resurrection. And every single time, the disciples just totally mess it up afterwards. He, he just got it off of his lips in verse 34. They'll mock him and spit on him, flog him, kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And the next thing we have is James and John, sons of thunder, as if we're supposed to be impressed by that, approaching Jesus, asking a pretty bold, ambitious And we're going to find a very ignorant question. This morning, I want to break our text into three sections. What we're going to see in verses 35 to 37 is the desire for greatness. The desire for greatness. After verse 37, verses 38 and 40, we're going to see the demand of greatness. The demand of greatness In our last section, verses 41 to 45, we'll see the descent to greatness. The descent to greatness. Let's set the stage, the desire for greatness. Those verses 35 to 37, James and John approach Jesus and they ask him, first, they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is ambitious. It's bold to ask Jesus before you've even asked him anything, to grant you your wish, right? They're about to ask for authority, 
power, and it seems like they're already trying to practice this by showing Jesus that they mean business. Just, I've heard that kids do this, right? Um, hey, Daddy, can I ask you for something? What is it? Well, just, just tell me you're going to say yes. Well, I need to know the, the request. No, 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 no. Just promise me you'll do this for me. I need some more context here, buddy. It's as if James and John have been reading another James in the Bible who writes in the epistle, James, you have not because you ask not. And they're going to put this to the test. They're going to show the boss that they mean serious business. I mean, after all, um, the world really likes go-getters, right? Show some drive. It's also ambitious because it speaks to their desire for power and authority. And, and Jesus is, is uh, he's going to play the game. He's going to play the game with them. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? And next week, we're actually going to, well, I say next week, um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to hit a passage, Mark chapter 10, verse 51, where Jesus says this exact same thing. What do you want me to do for you? But in this context, he's, telling, he's asking a, a blind man who has called out for mercy Jesus meets him, says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, would you grant me my sight? So Jesus does. Here, we've had somebody come up to him and say, do whatever, we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And you can sense the suspicion. What do you want me to do for you? But the request here is, we want to sit at your right hand. We want to sit at your left hand in your glory. The title um, of this section is often called uh, James and John Request. But look at, that, look at that verb, grant. Grant to us, give to us. It's almost a demand. Right? It's not just, please, would you do this? But it, it, they're showing authority. They're approaching Jesus and almost demanding, give to us this. It's actually the same verb that Jesus uses with the rich young man earlier in this chapter. Jesus says, give your stuff to the poor. Go, sell all your possessions. Think about the flow of that. Give outside versus James and John. Give to us. That's going to be a theme that we see throughout this passage. Um, it, it, I don't know, when you read the text with curiosity, you have to think James and John are asking left and right hands. And we all know the right-hand man is above the left hand. So James and John approach Jesus and they're asking, grant to one of us. And you know James is thinking, me, right hand. But you know John's on the other side thinking, me. He can be your left hand. You wonder if they had discussed this. They're already going behind the disciples back to ask Jesus. And maybe after this discussion, James will beat John to the punch and ask for the right hand. This is their request. To sit at Jesus' right and left hand, tears for fears was right. Everybody wants to rule the world. It's in the heart of every man and woman since the fall to achieve greatness. Right? In your glory, your greatness Martin Luther King Jr. actually has a very famous sermon that he delivered in Atlanta, Georgia. The drum major instinct. 
preaching this passage, the drum major instinct is something that we're all born with. A desire to be out front leading the parade. Everybody's marching to the beat of our drums. And when it doesn't go our way, watch out. The reason why I say we're all born with this is because look at kids. I mean, my wife sent me a video this morning. Sorry, Nash, to throw you under the bus. Uh, my kids opening their Easter stuff. Owen got a pack of Hot Wheels. Nash got a pack of Hot Wheels. And the very first thing Nash said is, I wanted those. <laughs> it's just in us. We, we want what we want. And when it doesn't go our way, when we don't achieve the things we want to achieve, we lash out. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Deceived into thinking that the fruit would make them like God. Great. Glorious. Like God. And the interesting thing is that God had already made them in his image. They were like God. In that moment when they desired to be second to no one, they were actually never more unlike their father. Just a few chapters later, we see the Tower of Babel, and what's the cry of the people building the tower? Let's make a name for ourselves. To build a tower to reach the heavens and rival God. All the while, our God, from Genesis 3 on, has made a plan to come down to us. It, it, it begs the question, what does it mean for Jesus to reign in his glory? Is it what James and John think it is? And you might be saying this morning, Jacob, that this is for somebody else because I don't really want to rule anything. Right? I'm not, I'm not running for office. I'm not trying to be the president of the company. I don't really want to rule anything but if our decisions are solely for our own benefit and selfish gain, that's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. To live without worrying about anyone but yourself. Maybe just master of yourself, but certainly slave to no one. If that's our desire, then this passage is for us. If we want life on our own terms and nobody else telling us what to do. It's also you, if we turn to uh, the parallel count in Matthew chapter 20, and we look in verse 20, we see that James and John are accompanied by someone when they ask Jesus the question. Their mother. James and John's mom comes to ask Jesus this very question. Give to my boys this power, left and right. Uh, to reign with you in your glory. Maybe you don't want a lot of glory for yourself, but maybe you want it for your children. And the world can so often interpret that. We can interpret it ourselves as the desire for our kids to be great is us loving them. That could be true, but here's what we have to do first. We have to check our definitions of what success and greatness mean for our kids. What does it look like for our kids to be great? Is it what James and John's mother thought? To sit on the right and left side of Jesus' throne? And the last example I can think of 
to show the desire for greatness. Comes from the book of Acts with Simon the magician. Do you remember this man who seemed legitimately saved to want to, uh, to want to follow Jesus, to want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it actually becomes apparent that the only reason that Simon the magician wanted to be filled with the Spirit was to do impressive things for his own benefit. It's a manipulation of the Spirit that our Father gives us upon our belief. So there's the question for us, the desire for greatness. It's an important one. What do you want from Jesus? That's the question. What do you want? Like, why are you here this morning? Why are you a Christian? Or why are you not? What do you want from Jesus? If he asked you that question, and he is through this word, what do you want? What kind of greatness are you pursuing? We're often ignorant to what real greatness is, and we see that because Jesus' response, as we turn from the desire of greatness to the demand of greatness, the first thing he says to them is, you don't know what you're asking. You do not know what you are asking. See, James and John have misinterpreted what Jesus' what glory is. Is it just the ability to boss people around and to get what you want? The answer is no. More on that later. So he asks them. You don't know what you're asking. Here's his patient response to enlighten them on what true greatness really is. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is this cup? Well, there's a couple of passages in the scriptures that help us understand what the cup is. First, we could turn to the, the closest one in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus is praying in, in the garden before his crucifixion. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will but what you will. This cup, remove this cup. A cup is the portion that God allots you. It is what he has for you. We see this in Isaiah 51, verse 17, an Old Testament understanding of what this cup is. Maybe what you've more traditionally known the cup to be. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. We, we talked about this at our Good Friday service, how Jesus in his crucifixion was not just suffering physical pain, but great spiritual pain, separation from the Father as he becomes sin for us. The cup of God's wrath is poured out upon him. The baptism with which he is baptized, he is submerged into death, into the hands of the religious leaders. This is where Jesus' glory and greatness get him. So he asked James and John, are you ready for this? 
probably not understanding everything that we now understand about the cup and the baptism, they say, we are able. And again, doesn't it just ring the bell of the rich young ruler when Jesus says, keep all these commandments, and he says, I have. The pride and the arrogance. But Jesus says, we're gonna put this to the test. They say, we are able, and Jesus says, you will. And at that moment, if they did not quiver. We, we read in Acts chapter 12, verses one and two about Herod the king decapitating James, the brother of John. Killed him with the sword. See, James and John are kind of bozos right now. I can identify with that. The change in the disciples after Jesus' resurrection and the coming of the Spirit is incredible. And James and John will be sold out to the mission of Christ and his kingdom. And because of that, they will drink a very similar cup that Jesus drinks. And here's the truth. The demand of greatness is this. If you live according to the standard of true greatness as defined by our Savior, the world will eat you alive. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Paul in Romans 8, verse 36, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's just be honest. If we live the type of greatness and glory that Jesus lived, we live a life that is ripe for opportunity to be taken advantage of by others. If you're slapped on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Asked to go one mile, go two. We will be taken advantage of you. And you might be thinking, I, I, I don't know. It, if I live like that, that sounds pretty dangerous. If I'm always focused on others, being a servant, being a slave to all, who's going to take care of me? He will. The one with actual power and authority. As soon as Paul finishes those letters, those, those words of, we are like sheep, led to the slaughter, we're being killed for the sake of the kingdom. He says this, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight sixteen to 17 really sum this up, the demand of greatness. Paul writes, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is what, this is what the request of James and John was, to reign in glory with Christ. What Christ makes perfectly clear through his life, and Paul fleshes out for us here, is that if you want the glory of Christ, you must also want the suffering of Christ. 
Jesus is enlightening them to their fate, right? He, he knows what will happen to them if they choose to follow him. He also enlightens them to something else that I think is, is rather interesting and a whole sermon in and of itself that we will not preach today. Jesus says, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. If you're anything like me, well, if it's not yours to grant, then who's, who's in charge of this stuff? Uh, Matthew's account actually helps us out here again because he adds three little words at the end of that. For those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. See, Jesus is a man under authority. And you don't see him going to his father saying, would you please just let me sit at your right hand? He takes the father's will, he takes the father's plan, and he lives it to his great expense. And he trusts the father to take care of him. That's what we celebrate this morning. Father taking care of his son, who is obedient to the point of death. The demand of greatness cost Jesus his life, and it will cost us ours. If you will follow me, he's already said this to his disciples, if you will follow me, you must take up your cross and die to yourself. There is a desire for greatness in all of us. There is a demand of greatness that calls to each of us, and there is a descent to greatness. Picking up in verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called to them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The opening of this passage, James and John, they come up to Jesus, implying that the conversation they're having with Jesus is supposed to be a, a very private one, right? You know, the subject matter at hand needs to be a little hush-hush. And Jesus' response to them must have let the the cat out of the bag because the ten hear of it, right? They become indignant. Not, if you ask yourself the question, why are they indignant? Why are they angered by this? I seriously doubt it's a, how dare you ask that? How dare you seek power, right? It's probably they're mad because they almost got bested, right? You thought you could sneak your way in. Get in line with the rest of us. I'm sure this indignation comes from a place where the others wanted to be at the top too. The desire for greatness is not just in the sons of thunder. It's in all the disciples. It's in all of our hearts. The things that we'll do to get to the top. I can thank my wife for understanding this and her love for the show, The Bachelor, or Bachelorette, or I don't know which one this happens mostly on. 
But there, that is a show with rules. You are not supposed to do certain things to make the playing field fair for everybody else in the contest. And yes, that's all it is, as a contest. But what happens? Every single time, everybody gets so mad because somebody doesn't follow the rules. And they go for an after-hours visitation. Or they sneak off for a date that they weren't technically supposed to have. And they get the one up on everybody else. And everybody else in the house goes crazy. It's the picture of what's happening here. It's like the disciples want to win the contest. And Jesus has been trying to tell them, the contest, you're going to win your own death. Are you really seeking the glory that I'm showing you? Or are you seeking the greatness and glory that the world teaches? Because that's what they want. As Jesus turns to the example of the worldly rulers, in verse 42, the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. This is actually what James and John are asking to do. They want to be this kind of great. And this makes sense because this is what they grew up witnessing. This is the definition of power and greatness they're working with. It makes sense in the world's economy. In fact, we're not going to turn to it, but in 1 Kings chapter 12, we see King Rehoboam. He's asking for how to handle a, a, a situation that's arisen. He goes to the old people who counseled Solomon, says, what should I do? And the, the elders counsel him, says, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. You see, a good king who serves his people, there is mutual service where his people start to serve him as well. Turns out he asks the young men for the same advice. And they say, just lay it on them. Put, it, put harsher restrictions on them. Add to their yoke. Discipline them. And King Rehoboam takes the young men's advice. It doesn't go so well. But there's this theme of a good king even in the Old Testament, being a servant king, a servant king, instead of adding to the yoke of the people, actually getting down on their level and serving them. This is actually what Peter tells us to be as pastors and elders of the church. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion. Willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain. Again, that outward versus inward glory. But eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. See, these rulers, elders in the church, receive the glory. But only if they rule 
and reign as the chief shepherd. Right? What, what is, is actually really important for us as we consider the descent of greatness is to think back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis. We're created in the image of God and we are given what? Dominion over creation. The word dominion is related to this word domineering. He says, don't be domineering, but yet we're given dominion. So what, what are we supposed to do here? Are we supposed to exercise dominion? Or are we not supposed to exercise dominion? Are we supposed to seek greatness and glory? Or are we not supposed to seek greatness and glory? Well, it depends on our definitions. In other words, if we're seeking greatness like the Gentiles, we are not exercising the dominion that God has given us. Are you going to rule like the Gentiles? Or are you going to rule like your father? Because when we're given dominion in the garden, the example of the king that we have is God. And how did God rule in the beginning? He met all our needs. He provided food and sustenance. And he dwelt with us, walking with his people in the cool of the day. Does that sound like a king to you? Probably not. It doesn't to me because we're so used to the way the Gentiles rule. That's how God exercised his power and it wasn't an issue until sin comes into the picture. But that's Jesus' goal, to take care of that. That's why he says to them, it should not be so among you. Among whom? Among those who have been crucified with Christ. You see, great leaders never ask their followers to do what they themselves aren't willing to do. Jesus asked them to be servants, but not until he has served them. I'll just tell you before we move to this last point that I'm convinced that after Jesus and after John the Baptist that the greatest person who has ever lived we don't have a clue what that person's name is. And, and, and why do I say that? Because the second that recognition comes to somebody's name for doing something great we can't handle it. And it goes to our heads and we start believing the world's definition of greatness. When the greatest person to ever live according to the biblical standard of greatness was probably someone who was never recognized and still continued doing what the Lord called them to do until their death. Is it all just putting in our time. Th these moments where I don't feel great, but I'm doing what the Lord's asking. Am I just waiting for my time? Are we just taking our licks on the way to the top? That makes me think of the person who has to get the coffee for everybody at work. 
They're just hoping that one day they're not gonna be that person. The one who has to deal with customers that no one else wants to deal with because they're the new person. The youth pastor that has to deal with the kids before he gets to be a senior pastor. Are the disciples gonna simply endure these things because they're promised a brighter future, greater glory? Just persevere in this lowly servant role and then you'll get your day. Was that Jesus's frame of mind when he was, was in the garden? Just three tough days. And then I'll be done with this. And then glory and greatness will be mine forever. Was that Jesus's frame of mind? Of, of course not. And why not? Because he already shared in the glory of the Father. What was he going to gain by becoming a servant? Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was already in the form of God before he takes the form of the servant. But it wasn't something to be grasped. He did not use this form of God for personal gain or advantage. So where does this intersect with Easter? Here's the main point. What Jesus is teaching his disciples is that the cross isn't the path to greatness. It's the epitome of it. The cross isn't the path to greatness. It's the epitome of greatness. In his crucifixion, Jesus was not seeking greatness. He was showing it. The most vivid display of the greatness of our Lord is seen on the cross. Easter Sunday, what do we think? The power of God, the glory of God seen in the empty tomb. It's certainly true. It is certainly true. But the greatness of our Lord is just as vividly displayed as he hangs on the cross for us. Not that the specific action of being nailed to a cross does anything for your level of greatness, but that the cross is the very instance that we see in Jesus in all of his glorious humility, surrendered to the will of the Father, determined to meet the needs of his people. That's greatness. When you stop at nothing to serve those around you. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And here's that direction again. Toward us. James and John grant to us, pulling in greatness and glory to themselves when what God does, raising Christ from the dead, is uses the greatness of his power for our benefit. The Jesus who went to the cross for us is the same Jesus who comes out of the grave for us. The one crucified for us is the one resurrected for us. Jesus' life before the resurrection has the same servant-hearted cross-shaped form as it does after the resurrection. He went to the cross as our servant king. He went into the grave as our servant king. He came out of the grave as our servant king. And today he reigns now and forever as our servant king. He is the same today Yesterday, yesterday and forever. If you have an ESV study Bible, 
there's a, a footnote on this verse I think is, is so helpful. It says this, this quality of humility and love for others flowing from the infinite love of God for his people will also characterize Christ's eternal rule. So what does this passage, why preach this passage on Easter Sunday? It's about the cross. It's about Jesus giving his life. But like that was Friday. In the cross, we see the depth of Christ's greatness in his love for us. And in the resurrection, we're assured that it will last forever. Amen. In the cross, we see the depth of Christ's greatness in his love for us. In the, in the resurrection is God's validation that it will never end. He is the same God. The God on the cross is the same God who comes out of the grave. What is he doing now? Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by, de were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The God who went to the cross for us now stands in intercession for us for eternity. He is the conquering king. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords, king of kings. Those with him are called and chosen and faithful. He is the conquering king, but he conquers as the lamb for his people. That is Christ's glory. And the last verse that we're going, we'll use as our sermon text next week because it is way too important to give 30 seconds. Jesus doesn't just give us the example of true greatness through his service unto death. His sacrificial ministry, the son of man, comes to serve us, breaks the bonds of anyone enslaved to the world's understanding of greatness, right? He's not just the example, he is the enabler of us to live to this standard of greatness. How does he do this? Because he enables us to receive and live by the Spirit instead of the flesh. He, he ransoms us from our flesh. So there is our three things. The desire for greatness is in all of us. The question for you is, whose definition of greatness are you pursuing? There is a demand of greatness. Are you willing and able to drink the cup and trust the Father? And there is a descent to greatness, exemplified by our Savior. The question for you is, are you seeking to become the master or the slave? Are you for you or are you for others? See the greatness of Christ in his cross and let the tomb remind you that he will be for all eternity our servant king. Would you pray with me? Father, this is an annual reminder of something that will be true for the rest of our lives. For all eternity, you will reign as king.
God, thank you for your example. Thank you for your example that we see in our passage today. Where two of your disciples who you've spent so much time with are still making the same mistake and yet you in your patience, your great patience, teach. You help us understand that what the world has portrayed as greatness to us since we've been born is not true greatness. That what our hearts desire when we think about ruling with you in glory is not the glory that we think it is. Thank you for your example. Thank you for ransoming us, enabling us to live a life that is completely beyond our grasp if we're walking by the flesh. The empty tomb, what a beautiful sight. But it, it was not some kind of cocoon where you went in one thing and came out something totally different. You are who you are. Today, yesterday, and forever. Let us see the resurrection and the tomb as evidence that you promise to be unchanging our servant king for all eternity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.